0: Hello, hello, hello. This is Adit Kapadia and uh, I'm coming to you on the sidelines of the very successful Houston India Conference. Uh, And we are having a fascinating lineup uh, of podcasts for you. Uh, This is MindMaker's 200th podcast, so we can't let uh, 200 be just like that. So we are coming to you on the 200th podcast. We are going to have a series of um, two or three podcasts on specific issues. On a specific issue with a, an issue expert or a, an expert on that um, side, and the first one, of course, is uh, national security, defense, and military. And I have a fantastic panelist with me today. I have Air Chief Vice Marshal uh, Air Vice Marshal Arjun Subramaniam, who has who was with the Indian Air Force for 36 years, over three decades. As I was jokingly telling him, longer than I have been alive. <laughs> but he's he more than that. He's in his capacity here as a military historian historian. historian, who has written some fantastic books, um, has a strategic affairs expert, and a panelist whose views we heard at the Houston-India conference and he had a Refreshing take on a lot of uh, defense and security issues. So, welcome to Mind Podcast, sir. Thank
1: you, thank you, Adit.
0: Such great a pleasure. Yeah. yeah, and we've been planning this for what two, three months since you were coming from
1: <laughs> coming to Houston. No, no, in fact, longer. I've been in touch with Pramod for almost a year. Huh. And uh, when I was at Harvard last fall, I couldn't oh. make it to Houston, even though Pramod had said uh, had had asked me to come down. Yeah. And so I'm glad uh, I've made it at last. Oh,
0: absolutely. And trust me, it's it's great to have you on, sir. Um, before before we get into the nitty gritties, your books and other things that I really want to talk about, I want to talk about what you told today. And uh, it was a very fa- I mean, I'll tell you, uh, my my wife was in the audience and she was saying that she's not a buff on national security, yet she said she enjoyed your refreshing take because she had not heard that earlier before. So you talk about India's uh, defense preparedness, you talk about uh, how there were new dynamics emerging in that and how there were new alliances, new relationships that India was formulating. So how would you categorize i mean we are sitting in united states so uh, you know you mentioned that uh, us probably does the most joint exercises um, uh, with india than it does with other allies so how would you term that in the new world order that we are seeing
1: yeah it's world? a you know it's it's basically a, a continuation of the robust indo us strategic partnership that, that's now almost uh, what over a decade and a half old, old. Yeah. and there is a lot of convergence uh, the Indian and the US militaries um, <coughs> are working towards interoperability they understand each other very well because of the commonality of language mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and therefore it's I think a natural progression of the Indo-US strategic partnership yeah. and more importantly I think it's just uh, two democracies moving forward uh, in a in a rapidly changing security environment
0: and that's so how would you classify this rapidly changing security environment uh, are we seeing new alliances being formed or are are we being too reductionist when we say al- allies and people who are foes and stuff like that is there a new dynamic emerging?
1: yeah there is certainly a new dynamic yeah. and the new the, the, the new dynamic uh, or the new dynamics that we are looking at yeah. is that the entire world is coming to grips with Deciding whether we are in for a (coughs) bipolar world with with the United States and China as preeminent powers Mm. or as India believes is it time for a multipolar world Mm, mm. and in a multipolar world. I think considering uh, the geographical location of India, Mm. India forms a very, very significant Uh, element of that multipolar world
0: that's actually a good point you brought about India and China and I want to talk about that that in detail because even when it comes to Asia India is refusing to look at Asia as a bipolar world where one one side is held by India and one side is held by China what India is doing is actually developing alliances with other countries around you know Japan Vietnam but we'll talk about that later when we get to that Um, I want to come I want to come to something that you said about the, the word you use synergy that i really liked and you you used it both in terms of dealing with uh, extremism and dealing with issues internally for india as well as dealing with external issues for india so let's talk about the external bit first and then we'll talk about the book and then we'll come to the internal okay bit. yeah so the external synergy how do you see that happening like do you like do you see india in especially in the last 10 years
1: two elements uh, there are two elements to uh, synergy As far as the external security dimension is concerned. The first is synergy between India's three services itself. Uh, If India is to emerge as a leading power and as a power of consequence in the region, uh, all the three services have to sort of shed their uh, individual turf defense and work together in order to ensure that 2 plus 2 plus 2 is not 6 but is equal to 8. So uh, Inter-service synergy is a sine qua non of mm. of, of uh, future capability development in the Indian context. Mm. The second dimension of synergy, when I talk about, is I talk about synergy between uh, between countries and states that think alike about security dilemmas, mm. that think alike about the fact that in an increasingly chaotic world we need more countries to follow a rule based international order mm-hmm. we need countries to come together who believe in the sanctity of global commons mm-hmm. and if you look if if you look at that template yeah. that is the foundation for the relationship between say india Japan, Vietnam, Singapore—that mm. particular area. I'm not saying the United States. United States, of course, the Indo-US yeah. US strategic partnership, Indo-India, United States, and Japan all form a part of this synergistic yeah. uh, approach towards international security. Yeah. So, so that's yeah, where it is. And,
0: and Indian foreign policy has been always a fascinating subject for me, where an Indian uh, Prime Minister can probably visit Israel and talk to Iran probably in the same week and and that's that's the most incredible like indian indian foreign policy over the last 20 30 years yeah. has been like that I,
1: yeah you and know and, uh, again i think you you touch upon a very interesting point because uh, there was a recent piece that i had written in swarajya magazine yeah. uh, that uh, that talked about engagement as the new buzzword in indian foreign policy mm. now engagement is a very interesting combination of hedging and engagement <laughs> yes and that's exactly how some of India's uh, relationship with multiple international partners has to be seen.
0: Yeah, I mean, when we talk about, let's just give an example to our listeners. When you talk about India, US and Iran, US was doing all these uh, sanctions and stuff, but India still managed to obtain a waiver. Yeah from the US. So India managed to keep both its economic interest in hand, yet not jeopardize the relations with either Iran or US and it could deal with Iran in Indian rupees. So it was a very fascinating, I mean, uh, uh, three way sort of uh, thing.
1: It is testimony to two things. Yeah, One is testimony to India's emerging clout in the international arena. Absolutely. And I'm using clout not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense. Mm-hmm and the other issue is india's credibility right when india tells the united states that look you've got to look at our engagement with iran <coughs> as essential f- for indian economic growth mm-hmm. if india was not a credible power mm-hmm. the united states wouldn't have sort of uh how do i say wouldn't have uh back uh you know uh, Backpedal, backpedal. Yeah, in terms of uh, threatening India
0: with sanctions no, and things absolutely. like that. Yeah. So when you talk about um, credible power, uh, let's talk about the incredible part of India, which yeah. is the India, India's wars. Yeah. The bo- and the incredible book that you've written. Um, sorry for my uh, bad puns on this. I just couldn't resist. <laughs> but um, uh, so India's wars, and I'm talking about. Air, Airwise Marshall is going to make an announcement in a bit so I don't want to get to that first let's talk about the 47 to 71 book that yeah. you've talked about I am particularly I was particularly interested Well, before we even get into the specific wars um, for our listeners who haven't read the book uh, what would you say that this book essentially would talk about if I were to say that wow. in, in about two in about two or three sentences if, yeah, if yeah. you have to tell
1: yeah. uh, India's wars is a is a hybrid military history narrative yeah. that aims to take the stories of the Indian Air Force, the Indian Army and the Indian Navy yeah. uh, to the common reader. Yeah. Because when when I went across various colleges and universities in India, there are many young people who came to me and said that, look, we're interested in knowing more about India's armed forces, yeah. but we want it in the form of an easily understandable narrative mm. that is devoid of too much of both academic and military jargon. And that's exactly what I've tried to do. I've tried to offer a narrative that peels like an orange.
0: And 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 you have succeeded completely. I mean, it's a fantastic book. I would recommend everyone to read it. Um, but you know, one thing I have to tell you, and India's military books and military history in India are quite less and I'll tell you why I'm saying that there are there are individual accounts of military history yeah. but India's military history has been almost reduced to autobiographies yeah. and biographies yeah. and it's a tragedy because I'm sure the and the tales of a, or the story of an individual officer or individual officers or heroes deserve to be told but there also needs to be more and more history of specific wars battles that the india the state has fought yeah state yeah the state has fought and um you talk about uh you talk about i mean the synergy between the indian air force navy and army and there are so many small small achievements especially on northeast yeah. that india has i mean the indian state the amount of bodies that the indian state has lost in the northeast if there was a you know an account of
1: that that would have, that would shock so many from people. 19 from the late 1950s onwards late, in nagaland
0: and, yeah. and now you have the bizarre situation or incredible situation where you know in mizoram we have the mizo national front coming back to power and if you look at the history of the mizo national front and the history of lal Dengar, that was just unbelievable how the indian state managed to
1: achieve that yeah the indian state managed to achieve that uh, you know mizoram is a is a successful case of uh, uh, transition transition yeah I transition mean, from count- mainstream yeah it's- transition from counterinsurgency to amalgamation into the in, into the indian state, indian state yeah. and that's why it's not hard to imagine that the mizo national front is now a mainstream political party yeah yeah, Ooh, yeah. And, and and i digress and and and, and, and i will not be surprised yeah if in the years ahead, yeah. the, the NSCN IM becomes uh, a mainstream national party yeah. in Nagaland.
0: Yeah, we, we forget the, the Naga Peace called a big yeah. achievement of the Modi government yes, where yes. they got to the NSCN IM in, the, uh, in Delhi and when they made the announcement, yeah, yeah. that was I think two, three years ago now. Yes. Yeah. So I, I digress. I know we, we when we were talking about what we were going to discuss, Mizoram and Nagaland did not even feature.
1: <laughs> but that's
0: that's the nature of mind podcast. When we talk about one topic, we go.
1: No, but then that's a singular achievement uh, of the Indian government in recent years of ushering in peace in yeah, the Northeast. Absolutely. And furthering a, a, a long-term objective of our look Eastern Act East policy. And, and
0: when we talk about synergy, it has been synergy of successive yeah. Indian governments. Yeah. So that is a, an achievement. Um, and a rare uh, political bipartisan (laughs) achievement in India's case. So let's talk about the 65 war because that's what we were talking about. So you mentioned something before we started recording that the, the 65 war has to be looked at in two terms. One is the strategic terms and one is what was the ultimate outcome of it. And the strategic term of course being are far more important than in how India responded to where it was. So, how would you view it?
1: Firstly, India's response to um, India's response to uh, Pakistan's state-sponsored aggression first in Jammu and Kashmir, then across the entire uh, in forty-eight uh, in or forty-seven, forty-seven, forty-eight. Uh-huh. Thereafter, the incursions in Kutch. Mm-hmm. In 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 early sixty five, and then and then the uh, attempted subversive uh, in uh, you know incursions in August nineteen sixty five before India opened a, a, another front in September nineteen sixty five. The the there are two or three issues re- regarding nineteen sixty five. One is that you have to look at what was the ultimate strategic aim of the Pakistani military establishment. Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. was to severe Kashmir. Mm -hmm. That strategic outcome or that strategic aim was not met. Mm -hmm. On all other fronts, uh, Pakistani perceptions of superiority Mm -hmm. were all countered successfully by the Indian military. So at a strategic level, uh, the Pakistanis came away with no objectives achieved. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so a clear strategic advantage for, for India. Absolutely however if you were to look at it with a you know very very honestly mm. at the at the operational and the tactical levels uh, i would say that the indians were surprised initially mm. but then they fought back very resiliently as is the case every time mm. so so i would actually not go so far as many pakistani commentators uh, argue that Operationally and tactically, it was a stalemate. Mm. It was not really a stalemate. The Indians would have the Indians were certainly ahead when 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 the truce was called. Yeah, uh, and there are certain constituencies within the Indian military who felt that Pakistan had reached combat exhaustion. Yeah, and that had the Indian military been given some more time, yeah, it could have forced uh, a decisive outcome.
0: Yeah, and then. Uh, uh Tragically enough, of course, what happened after the 65 war uh, was there. I mean, we are actually uh, date wise very close to what the day it happened or something in January.
1: The Tashkent. uh, Yeah, the
0: Tashkent. So, I mean, subsequently, India suffered politically as well because of that. And maybe uh, if there were stronger responses or stronger ideas formulated or something, maybe it did not work out politically. Right now, it was 50 years ago. So, I mean, you know, we we can only be the best judges, but what you said was a... uh, coming from, f- going from 65, where there was sort of initially some political stability and then political instability uh, after the war to then 71 war, where there was almost
1: political will. And there was perfect synergy. Perfect synergy, yes. That's the one word I would say. A Perfect state synergy yeah. orchestrated the collapse of East Pakistan. Yeah, and, and the most
0: incredible part is the uh, the state, the Indian state has never denied the account that has come out. Like since about you know um, uh, the Indian state, uh, what Indira Gandhi's and Sam Manekshaw's conversations were, or you know the accounts in J F R Jacob's books, mm-hmm. for that matter, uh, you know that that's the most interesting part because India had a long history of denying every <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> every good thing we had done, and then you you came to this so. 71 war east pakistan especially was a, a clear clear achievement for in, not just the indian army but even
1: indian spycraft do you know there is something which 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 the world hasn't recognized enough mm. and that is one of the first instances of large-scale responsibility to protect operations right were conducted in 1971. You know, of late, responsibility to protect has become a buzzword in in the United Nations. Mm, mm. But people don't give enough credit to India Mm. for having initiated military operations in 1971 as a humanitarian and altruistic fallout Mm. of alleviating the refugee crisis.
0: No, and, and who can forget uh, when you talk about the United Nations, that uh, moment in United Nations when uh, Swaran Singh was the external affairs minister and the Security as a, as a, as a Assembly Council had almost passed a resolution and Russia vetoed the, yeah. that clip is there. Yeah. So um, I, India was actually against the whole world. Yeah, if with a very few allies, yeah. and uh, it still managed to do what it did, yeah. and uh, I think Sam, Sam General Sam Manekshaw, and ma- there are many architects of this. So I would, I would not even put it on just one person. No, absolutely not.
1: It was, it was teamwork of of, of a very of, superior. Or, and, and, and
0: we can't even forget R.N. Cow. Of course. Yeah, like B. Raman's account yeah, where he talks yeah, about yeah. the cowboys of Rao and what he did.
1: Uh, you know, we mili- we people in the military like talking about this term shaping the battlefield. Right. Actually, Cow's boys shaped the battlefield. House were shaped
0: the battlefield, and yep. then the military came and yep. did its yep. work. So, and then and then you were also mentioning how we can view the how we need to view the Eastern Front and the Western Front very differently, yeah. and how. So, can you quickly talk uh, talk about that,
1: and then we'll talk about yeah. The other you know. Uh, oh general candith who was the uh, general officer commanding uh, in chief of western army command mm. in his memoirs has written that he was he was quite cut up with manikshaw mm. when manikshaw pulled out forces from the western front to increase the uh, the, the amount of West, uh, the offensive forces on the eastern front yeah and that's when sam manikshaw uh, was very clear mm. that he knew that with the with his current force levels he could not force decisive outcomes, both on the Eastern eastern and the Western front. Mm, mm. And therefore it is testimony to, to India's strategic acumen at the highest level yeah. that it decided that it would focus on the Eastern front mm. because there was a reason to do so. Yeah. <coughs> and that the Western front would be more of a holding battle mm. wherein you don't allow the Pakistanis any space and wherever you find any opportune spaces mm you would attempt to launch offensives and and seize ground. Mm. So so overall, I would say that the Western Front, India did not have the necessary force levels in order to force a decisive outcome. Mm. And that's the way it it, it needs to be seen. And you said the word two plus two plus
0: two earlier. 71 was a classic case of what was that. And even with specific achievements so the Navy had the PNS Ghazi issue. um, Army, of course, on the ground, it had Indian Air Forces on the Western and the Eastern Front.
1: uh, Excellent performance. Yeah, excellent
0: performance. And uh, because even in, I mean, in Kargil, you saw, you did, and we're going to not talk about after uh, 71 because that's in the next part of the podcast for a good reason. Um, uh, You, 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 even you didn't see as much synergy as you saw in 71 there was synergy in Kargil but like the, the Navy of course was not involved the same way it was during 71 and so forth
1: yeah so I I agree yeah uh, that uh, it's and, and and it's unfortunate it's unfortunate yeah. I, as an analyst I've been scathing I've been quite scathing of yeah. uh, uh, the absence of initial inter-service synergy in Kargil yeah
0: and and that's such an important lesson that India needs to learn yeah. that maybe, I mean, and I don't want to go into the realms of what could have happened and stuff. Right now, we just have to analyze what happened. Was it correct or not? And and clearly a, a bit of inter-service synergy, inter-service synergy would have gone a long way there. So uh, with that, I'm ending part one of this, part two, uh, Air, Air Vice Marshal is going to make a small announcement, and you guys would want to be around for this. And then we'll uh, wrap up the discussion with uh, talk a little bit of talk about the contemporary times and uh, internal synergy in within India. So. Um, Uh, Arjun sir we were talking about 47 to 71 what about India's achievements after 71 are you
1: writing something about that absolutely certainly (laughs) I would say how can I stop at 1971 (laughs) absolutely I can't because you see when you start telling a story you've got to complete it yeah because I think not
0: a lot of contemporary history of India is written so are we seeing a sequel
1: yeah, I I think you are seeing a sequel, <laughs> and I you know I, I when people used to ask me that, uh-huh. I used to say maybe maybe not. Can I do a book like that of, of hundred and eighty thousand words? And I think now after uh, you know particularly after having uh, retired in two thousand and seventeen uh, and having had about eighteen months of uh, sabbatical to do some meaningful uh, thinking and writing, mm-hmm. uh, I think I can very well say that. Uh, Uh, you should see a sequel by the end of 2019. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I mean, you have three decades of experience with you and even more years of reading. I mean, you know, I can't even imagine what it must be to go through Pages and pages of reference material.
1: I, I think uh, I think it would not have been possible had there not been a latent passion for military history. You know, I've been uh, from the time I was a kid, I was uh, interested in military history. Yeah. You know, uh, Arjun, uh, Arjuna, Alexander, Napoleon; these were all my heroes right. uh, when I was a kid. And uh, I think it was just a matter of time before, uh, you know, I. I'd wanted to write about contemporary Indian yeah, it's, it's so history. It's so fascinating.
0: Yeah. You said Arjuna. India has a rich history of writing about wars and so forth. About when it comes to our epics and even uh, probably pre-independence. Pre-ind- but then in the last few years, post-independence, that has disappeared. Yeah.
1: You know, there again, I uh, you know, I I, ha- I hold some very strong views on this. Yeah. And the reason is that uh, I think contemporary Indian military, uh, contemporary Indian history, mm. uh, has been hijacked mm. by political, social, economic, and cultural historians. And military history actually has been has been a sideshow yeah. uh, and has been perceived as a forgettable legacy of our colonial past. Whereas this is something that I felt was extremely unjust because uh, like I mentioned in today's conference, I think the Indian military has played a very, very important role in the way in which Indian democracy has both flourished and survived.
0: And we only have to look uh, 5 miles to the west yeah to to look at where the military is not playing is playing an overarching role yeah. in in the the government yeah, yeah. and uh, you compare that to how the indian military has is is conducted itself uh, and we you know people forget India has been India is only 70 years young yeah. uh, the I mean it's a 5000 year old civilization but India in gained independence in 1947 and it has been through tumultuous times
1: and let's not delude ourselves there is uh, there is a segment of uh, you know uh, we have a constituency that likes to believe India as this altruistic uh, uh, and 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 path-breaking democracy that has grown like none other but if you look at the fine print of the growth of indian democracy okay. it has been interspersed with tremendous conflict and uh, external and internal conflict and
0: can i add something to what you're saying and an incredible digestive power of the indian state yeah. to take losses yes yes I mean the amount of. That's body why I bags. say the
1: Indian. That's why I say the Indian military is probably the most resilient yeah. military in the world today. The amount of body bags. Casualties. Come
0: from Kashmir and Northeast. Yeah. Another country, you would have seen something, but the resilience of the Indian soldier. Yeah. And. I mean, you know, people people forget. You have a village with hundred homes, and you have five or six body bags coming. Yet you have mothers telling their sons to go back to the army at the same location. That is th- that can only happen if there is amazing respect
1: for that institution. And you know, the, the other thing that is the the other thing that is that makes the Indian army particularly. I'm not saying that the Indian Air Force is not resilient because the Indian Air Force also takes heavy losses. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, but but the Indian army particularly owes its resilience probably to its regimental system right to its regimental system it's its ability to tap the the very deepest reaches of Indian society
0: absolutely so you know from so we are eagerly waiting for the sequel I think it's going to be a fascinating read uh, and I
1: hope so I hope so
0: and I mean and I'm. This is not the end of the podcast, but I'm telling you, you have to come back for it. We have to have a discussion on it. <laughs> I hope uh, uh, because I'll tell you, I will devour that book in no time.
1: I hope <laughs> so, so. I hope so. I'm, I'm. I'm. sure it'll be tasty enough. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I. I'm sure the India's. If India's history is any indication, <laughs> your book is is going to be. And, tasty and you know, enough. but I must share with listeners one aspect. Yeah. And that is that people people ask me. People think that war and conflict in contemporary India has ended with 1971 or Kargil. Uh-huh that is you couldn't have anything further from the truth mm. the fact of the matter is that if you if you look at the sheer landscape that i would be painting in volume 2 mm. you will realize the extent to which <coughs> india's armed forces have been engaged mm. Mm. in in multiple issues in protecting sovereignty in, preve- in, in in preventing internal fissures and cracks from growing wide open mm-hmm. and from spreading its wings yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, in, into into areas of influence and interest. Absolutely. I, you know, I think uh, you, you make my job very easier, uh, because I
0: was actually going to come into contemporary and you yourself brought the point. So that's a perfect segue to talk about the last part of our podcast, yeah, what yeah. we were talking about. Because, in, and I want to bring back to the Indochina point that you found, where India is forming alliances with Japan, Vietnam. You also have that issue.
1: I'll just correct you over here. Yeah. Uh, The Indian strategic establishment does not like the word alliance. Alliance. I I knew
0: you would catch me on that. So
1: so I think a a better term to use from the Indian context would be robust partnerships. Robust partnerships. We'll go with that. (laughs) With
0: Japan we have a robust economic and strategic partnership. Uh, as coming from Ahmedabad, the bullet train, of course, is the uh, very generous economic and might I add technological partnership where they are actually sharing the technology, which is very rare in these days. But, you know, I'm combining various questions into one because we're running out of time. Uh, Right now, actually, there was a, a movie coming out on the URI surgical strikes and stuff. And we were talking earlier how the Indian state, what has difference is that they will respond in kind and they will not be afraid to own up to
1: it just two sentences here yeah okay both with let people forget that this changed approach to national security started with the cross border or the along the indo-myanmar border strikes correct okay and then we progress to the the cross border strikes in uh, uh, along the line of uh, line stuff. of control mm. and then the, the imbroglio at Dokla. Right. Now, uh, I will stay away from any kind of muscular chest thumping sure. or sensationalism. Mm-hmm. And all what I would say is the change in approach is from primarily a reactive form of deterrence mm. to a more proactive form of deterrence mm. with elements of coercion also embedded in it mm-hmm. with a larger signal of saying, look, you can't really mess around with us Hmm. so you know I won't read too much into this shift Hmm. other than it's a little more assertive and more proactive. Yeah, I mean, it's
0: happened for the better. No question about it. And like what you said, uh, India somehow is very short about celebrating its own contemporary history. So, you know, you you actually brought a, you actually mentioned a very interesting point where you said the uh, writing of Indian history was dominated by political, economic and social and cultural and cultural things. And that's a tragedy. Why would it be wrong for us to celebrate our victories when we were not even, when we were provoked Someone attacked us. We we responded in kind and showed our grit. And is wrong to celebrate it? Again,
1: again, again. I would I would uh, sort of uh, uh, I would uh, sort of suggest mm. a little caution here. Yeah. Uh, celebration again is not the right word to use. Well, celebration of heroes. E- even celebration. Galilee. Even celebration. You know, you need to you, a you need to remember them. Correct. You need to honor their their sacrifices. Sure. But more importantly, you need to understand the context in which those sacrifices were made. Absolutely. So that you don't repeat the situational yeah. occurrences that cause more such people to offer such sacrifice. Yes.
0: As the cliche goes, happens once and happens twice, shame on me. Yeah. <laughs> that, and then know? the
1: more and that's why I would rather I would rather look at the benefits of having a highly trained military. Yeah. By using the cliche of the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. Yeah,
0: and a an highly informed establishment. Yeah, yeah, a, and a probably highly informed citizen, citizenry. Which, that is
1: another thing. Narrative, narratives, narrative. Like, <laughs> like like uh, Professor Paranjpe mentioned this morning. Right. We need more narratives. Yeah. And we need more objective and correct narratives, right. not jingoistic or skewed narratives. Mm. You need objective narratives.
0: Yeah, and and you you nailed it uh, when you said that because uh, we we have it we even military leave like military when we talk about defense national affairs it, it bo- and we were talking about this offline where it bothers you know when when people look at it through a political prism because you cannot no you there know has to be a bipartisan consensus absolutely
1: absolutely i don't know uh, uh, you know if there is one thing if if there are two things that will mark the the transition of india from being a a developing country mm. and an aspiring power mm. to a fully developed country and a leading power mm. one is the eradication of poverty and the second is the embracing of a bipartisan approach towards national security both these issues will contribute significantly to comprehensive national power
0: fantastic fantastic point the
1: first one is i think uh, the, the, the overarching goal of the Prime Minister mm. when he says that everything else is secondary uh, in front of India's march from being a developing country to being a fully developed country. Mm. And one of the drivers to that <coughs> is going to be when are we going to sort of come together and offer a bipartisan uh, approach to national security? Excellent point.
0: Excellent point, um, Air Vice Marshal. And before we end, uh, so this is a tradition we have on Mind Podcast where we always end with a non-political recommendation. It could be a book, it could be a movie, it could be anything, it could be on military history, anything. Um, Before you give your recommendation, I am again recommending Please read India's wars and, and read everything that Airwise Marshall has written in terms of columns and books. He's he's a fascinating mind and a, a rare commodity, a military, a military a, um, an Air Force man who's become a military historian with a very nuanced take on strategic affairs and world affairs. And you have not limited yourself to just viewing from India's national security purpose. You're also, when you write your columns, you're also writing about the global Changing worlds. So do read everything that he writes. He tweets at Rhino Historian yes, at uh, Historian. Uh, I'm assuming you all know how to spell historian. <laughs> so um, your
1: recommendation. Okay. I have I have three sets of uh, I have three sets of recommendation. Hmm. One is in house mm-hmm. from where I come from. That uh, the next decade needs to see a significant shift in inter service synergy. Hmm. within India's armed forces. Mm -hmm. It's happening, but much more needs to be done. Mm. Second, second is I would like to see a greater synergy between the military and the civilian bureaucracy and and the political establishment. And the third thing is right at the macro level is looking for a bipartisan approach to solving challenges and problems of national security.
0: Fascinating. Any, any book or movie or something that you would recommend, any book that for our uh, listeners, any other book that you would recommend or any piece that you've read that's fascinating?
1: Yeah. Uh, there are two books, you know, yeah. one and both not very new, I mean to say both a couple of years old, mm. but which are, I think, essential for anybody who wants to understand uh, uh, fascinating issues of uh, uh, you know strategy as well as uh, geostrategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first book is a is a book that's called war from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's written by uh, an ex-British uh, Gorkha officer Emil uh, Simpson and uh, he's done two tours in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and he's written a book in his late 20s mm-hmm. when he was in his late 20s that talks about war from a twenty-nine-year-old's perspective, but a twenty-nine-year-old who is far wiser than his age, okay. and the book exhorts policymakers and governments across the world to understand the rapidly changing character of war. Mm-hmm. And the second book, of course, is Sanjeev Sanyal's uh, Ocean of Churn. And why I say that is because uh, increasing geopolitical focus is being is is is, is being uh, Uh, sort of given to uh, the Indo-Pacific region Mm. and you will realize that the Indian Ocean is a significant element of the Indo-Pacific. And and Sanjeev Sanyal has offered a very very Indian perspective of the Indian Ocean in Ocean of Churn. And therefore I was speaking to him this afternoon when I told him that when people talk to me about Robert Kaplan's monsoon, as a fantastic book about the indian ocean i advised them i said yes read robert kaplan but also read sanjeev sanyal's ocean of churn so these are my two recommendations
0: so uh allow me to shamelessly plug our discussion with <laughs> Sanjeev Sanyal. We actually had a, a video, Mind Hangout, with uh, okay. Siddhartha and promote talk to Sanjeev Sanyal. So, and around the same time the book came out and stuff. And Sanjeev, of course, we heard him today. He was yeah. fascinating uh, as the pre- yeah. principal economic advisor to the Government of India. But excellent recommendations. My recommendation is going to be The Cowboys of Raw by B. Raman. He, he talks about how was, uh, you know set up the Raw and then detailed uh, discussion of the 1971 war and other things. So, do read. It's about um, just like we were talking about uh, the synergy between spycraft, the Indian Army, the Indian Navy, and the Indian Air Force. Uh, the 71 war was a great example, and it has a lot of good lessons for us to learn. With that, I would like to thank uh, Air Vice Marshal Arjun Subramaniam for taking the time out and speaking to us. It's been a great interaction. I hope I did not bore you. Sir. No,
1: not at all, Adit. It was wonderful being here and I look forward to keeping up this conversation Absolute. sometime in the future.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the one bad thing that I have is I don't shut up. So <laughs> we will be talking, we will be discussing and uh, eagerly looking forward to your sequel. Yeah. Yes, was. yeah. Thank you so much.